getting close, getting real close to Christmas. Couple of housekeeping issues before we get started. Um, first, just a reminder, many of you already know the drill, but December is our year-end giving month. We like to finish the year strong going into the new year. That's because most nonprofits, churches included, rely on roughly 25% of their entire annual budget coming in in that one month. So we rely on this kind of extended generosity in the month of December. So please prayerfully consider how you might help us reach those goals. Secondly, Christmas Eve services, Friday. Now, as you notice in the bulletin or handout, um, there's a great debate in the church world whether to call them bulletins or handouts. It's very good. Whole church conferences dedicated to this issue. Um, we were having our Christmas Eve services outside. There's a couple reasons for that. First, one of the things we realized last year is that many of you like uh, real candlelit Christmas Eve services, and because of fire code and fire safety, we can't have several hundred candles lit in this room. So something that we learned last year that was pretty special for many of you, myself included. Secondly, we want to save you uh, some possible headaches and drama around the table, because oftentimes you have uh, extended family coming into town, and you don't all agree on everything, like politics, religion, uh, what pies should be served at Thanksgiving and Christmas. And one of those things that might cause friction is kind of large gatherings uh, inside with all the stuff that's going on. So we want to remove, we don't want you to have any drama around Christmas Eve. We will have a nice candlelit Christmas Eve service outside. We will do the extra work. If there's a little bit of rain, uh, it's not that big of a deal because you might not know this, but about a year and a half ago, we became experts in putting on outdoor services. Um, so we'll be prepared. And if the weather gets like super crazy, we can always come inside. So that's the plan for that. Now, week three of why this jubilee. And what I'd like to do today is focus in on a character that's central to the Christmas story that like everyone knows about, but oftentimes... Um, not, it's weird. Not a lot of attention is given to her. Sometimes it's because uh, other church traditions may put an overemphasis on something, and so other traditions may kind of back off. But what I want to do is just take a close examination of the figure of Mary and the early life of Jesus. Um, and she's introduced to us in a very, very popular passage. Like what I'm about to read is nothing... Um, Nothing new, even if you didn't grow up in the church world, you're familiar with the first parts of the Christmas story. But as you'll see in the early life of Jesus, there's much more going on with this young woman. So our first introduction to Mary goes like this. In the sixth month, of the, the, sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will come to conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua means the Lord saves, Yahweh saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, 
how will this be since I am a virgin? That's a great question. Uh, And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Okay, I want to get to how Mary responds to all of this in a moment. But before we do that, I want to look at the complexities of Mary's life. Because there's, there's a number of things that significantly shape her, that make her who she is. So what we'll do is we'll put Mary here in the center and look at factors that influence her. The first one, and a significant one, would be Rome. In 63 BC, General Pompey, a Roman general, comes in, lays siege of Jerusalem, and conquers it. And from this point forward, Israel has to pay taxes and tribute to Rome. They essentially become a servant. There are some, uh, there's a, a level of anonymity that, that Israel has, but for the most part, they are in the position to serve Rome. They pay taxes and tribute. And that's bad enough, having someone rule over you. But Rome, they're, the, they're bad guys. They can be cruel. They have all kinds of horrible things that they've done. So it's not a good picture. But more importantly than that, there's something else going on. Rome is now in charge of Israel. Israel is the holy land. It is the promised land. And it's called the promised land because God promised it to Israel. So the land isn't just land. It's not just a piece of dirt. The land is a manifestation of the promises and word of God. The land is a manifestation of the very religious structure of this people. So to have Rome ruling over it is no small issue. This is a big, big deal. You have to think about, like, what is this what does this do to your understanding of God, to his faithfulness, to his promises, to his word, to your understanding about yourself, to your understanding about the land and your people and your traditions? Like all of that is put into to chaos, into turmoil. And again, uh, to make it worse, they're, they're, not a, they're not a good landlord. They're bad. Rome is, is, is strict. They are tough on you. You challenge them, you might find yourself hanging on a Roman cross. So this significantly shapes Mary. Her entire life, the majority, if not all, of her parents' life is in the shadow of Rome. Additionally, she is poor. And we know this because in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that when Mary and Joseph go to the temple, they offer two turtle doves or pigeons rather than the lamb. And that was a sacrifice that was allowed for people who were poor and couldn't afford the proper sacrifice. Okay, so Mary is someone who is familiar with praying for daily bread in a literal sense. She, she, she prays to God for daily provision. Her parents would have done that. And this is something that's difficult for us because we don't necessarily wrestle with that. I mean, we walk into a grocery store and see more food in a single instance than some people I've seen in their entire life. But she's someone who knows what it's like to live under those circumstances, to have those things out of your hands. There was a famine in roughly 23 BC that infected, that affected the entire region. Thousands of people starved to death. And so within her parents' lifetime, and maybe her parents might have known people that starved to death because of lack of food. So within the family's memory, 
there are situations where people had so little to eat, they actually starved and died. Like that affects and shapes the way you think about the world. On top of that, the poor are often mistreated and abused and without wealth and resources, sometimes there's no recourse for the injustice that's occurred. So Mary lives in the shadow of Rome. That makes her feel like vulnerable. It makes her feel as if like in the big picture on the global scale, things are out of control. And on a, on a daily level, her socioeconomic situation is out of control. It's out of her hands. Additionally, she is a woman, and so she wouldn't have been afforded the same rights as her male counterparts. Women weren't given the same rights. They, their voice did not hold the same weight. They were not treated the same way. And so a picture begins to emerge of this young woman who has so many things out of control in her life, out of her hands. It's like that's the lot assigned to her in the shadow of Rome, socioeconomic, poor, She's a woman, and because she's a woman, the situation would lead up ultimately, in most cases, to betrothal. And she's betrothed. The writing on that, there's a little arrow that turns to the next slide, so that's why it ascends over that, if you notice that, sorry. The ED on betrothed is avoiding an arrow on my slide that goes to next slide. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. She's betrothed. Now think about this for a second. She's a young woman about to enter into this crazy new phase of life. Now, this is an arranged marriage. Uh, Contrary to to popular opinion, it's not as if Mary had no say in this arranged marriage. The bride-to-be had to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down to who her father had arranged. Nevertheless, there's immense amount of pressure surrounding her to kind of get on board with what her family has chosen for her. There's tons of fear with that. I'm going to leave my house. I'm going to go be with this new person. He seems nice right now. Dad trusts him right now. But I've heard stories of other girls being married, and within a year, the, the man is completely different. He could treat me poorly. He could mistreat me. Additionally, uh, because Mary's poor, most likely Joseph's not a wealthy dude. And so one of the things she would be wrestling with, and her father would be wrestling with, is this guy Joseph going to be able to provide for me? Will he be able to provide, like, Will we starve? Will there be bread consistently for us to eat? Will there be bread for my future children? Again, we don't wrestle with that. Uh, In the movie, the great musical, Fiddler on the Roof, if you haven't seen it, you should. It's required reading. There's three required readings at this church. Fiddler on the Roof, Nacho Libre, and Lord of the Rings. It's required reading. It's in the syllabus. It's in the syllabus. In Fiddler on the Roof, the father, the main character, Tevye, is wrestling with whom to give his daughter's hand in marriage to. And the local butcher wants to marry her. And Tevye, the father's like, I don't really like this dude. He just kind of annoys me, you know? Bugs me. Uh, And he's wrestling in his head whether or not to go ahead with this arranged marriage to the butcher. And the thing that kind of pushes him over the edge, where he goes, oh yeah, let's give my daughter's hand in marriage to the butcher, he goes, Because he's a butcher, she won't starve. And it's kind of comical to us as modern people. It's like, dude, this dad is really just going to pick a husband based off of, she won't starve. But that's an open invitation into the world that these people live in. See, the main character, Tevye, and his wife, they'd experienced winters where they starved, where they barely made it. And so he just wants his daughter 
to have someone that will provide enough food so she doesn't die of starvation. That's a different world. And so Mary feels all of these things out of control. My country is out of control. My socioeconomic state is out of control. I am a woman, and on top of that, I'm betrothed, about to enter into a marriage to this guy I know, but who knows what he will be like. I hope he has enough to provide. And then if the stress of all that isn't enough, now she gets told, you're going to have a baby. 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 Now, infant mortality at this, this point in history is very high. Many babies are lost during childbirth. Additionally, many mothers die giving birth to their children. It's no small thing. It's a very scary thing. Mary most likely would know someone in her village or maybe a surrounding village who died or had their baby lost in childbirth. And now she's in that process. On top of that, she's a virgin. What is Joseph going to think? What is my community going to think? What are my parents going to do? So you feel all these layers of stress and tension, all of these things that are completely out of this young girl's hands, right? My country is out of my hands. My, my economic situation out of my hands. I am a woman. I'm betrothed into a new situation that's out of my hands, and now I'm pregnant. And maybe some of you have been there before. You recall this, or maybe you're there right now where life is throwing all these different things at you. There's you in the center, but then there's this issue and this issue and this issue, and there's stress here and tension here, and there's problems here, and you have a weakness here, and there's a problem and a problem and a problem, and you feel it all kind of crushing in on you. And you, can, you know, you actually feel it like in your body, in your neck, in your, like your shoulders, and in your back, and the stress piles up, and you can almost get to a place where you're, You forget to breathe, like literally. Have you been there? Oh God, this, this, and this. You forget to breathe. You tighten up and you forget to exhale. Mary at this point is remarkable because with all of these things that are out of her hands and out of her control, this young woman is courageous and brave enough to respond like this. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I mean, so many of us would be like, Gabriel, you got the wrong person. It ain't gonna be me. I don't wanna do this. Mary's young. We don't know her exact age, 14, 15, 16, 17, somewhere in that range, 18, 19. She's a young girl with all of this, the weight of the world on her, and she exhales, she breathes. Here I am. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And in this, she joins a long list of people who have responded like this in faithful ways. So think of Abraham on the mountain of sacrifice with Isaac. God calls out to him, and Abraham says, Here I am in Hebrew, Hinani, I'm here. What would you have of me? Or Moses at the burning bush, here I am. Or the young Samuel being called as a child, he says, here I am. Or the prophet Isaiah, before his call into the prophetic ministry, God says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am. And Mary's a part of this long tradition of faithful people who have responded to God and just said, here I am. I'm your servant. Use me. Let it be to me according to your word. 
This tells us something about her posture. Like, how, how does one stand before God? Her posture is one of humility. Even though everything's out of control, I am not my own. I am yours. Here I am. Use me. Now, this isn't the only time things will be out of control in the life of Mary with her young boy. So, in a very short moment, the king of the land, the most powerful person in the land, decides he must kill every male boy two years and younger. He perceives a threat that there is a baby born that might usurp him and take his crown, take his throne. So he basically puts out a hit on all male baby boys because he wants this Jesus dead. But think about that. The most powerful person in the land with soldiers and spies and resources is set on murdering your baby. Can you imagine the terror and the panic that would overtake you? I mean, this is overwhelming. He's got the soldiers, he's got the spies, he's got the resources. They're going to hunt you down and kill your baby. Joseph gets notice of this, and an angel appears to him, and he says, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And oftentimes, you know, we read this as a relief. Oh, there's a plan. But think, think, think about Mary's state of mind for this. This guy still wants to kill my children, and now the plan is to go to Egypt. Egypt is a few hundred miles away. What about food? What about resources? What route are we going to take? What about robbers? What about bandits? On top of that, I just had a baby. He's still young. Jesus is young at this point. We're going to go off to Egypt? You don't just take a flight there. But Mary and Joseph are resolved to serve the Lord. So what do they do? Let's go to Egypt. We're going to Egypt. Lord, that's your will. That's your word. Let it be according to me. Your will, not mine. It's powerful. I mean, these, these people are courageous and faithful and brave. And there's another time where Mary seems to be completely out of control, like just chaos is all around her. has to do when Jesus is a little bit older in Luke chapter 2. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, it's going to tell us in a little bit that they're actually searching for Jesus for three days. Now, again, don't just like move on. Picture and imagine the terror and panic overtaking Mary, overtaking Joseph. You've been in the grocery store before and you're pushing your shopping cart. You say, come on, baby. And you turn and your child's not there. 
Now, you know, like, co- like cognitively, you tell yourself, okay, they're probably just at the aisle before because there's candy there. But even though you tell yourself that, what happens? Boom. Boom, 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 boom. Your heart starts to pick up. And then you go look at the aisle before and you look and they're, they're not in the candy. And then you're trying to tell yourself to stay calm, but you push your shopping cart twice as fast and the heart's boom, 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 boom. And you turn to the third aisle and there they are looking at Red Bull. (laughs) And it's like, the great exhale, the great exhale, the child is found. That's just for a few short moments and your heart is pacing and the stress is there. You're holding your breath and you don't even know it. They are looking for Jesus for three days. Now, oftentimes people in the church world, and I get the reasoning why, it's not that this is completely wrong. I just think it can be misleading. We'll say things like, man, imagine losing your child, but imagine losing the Son of God. Like, look, Mary and Joseph, they're aware that this boy is the Messiah, but we don't know exactly, like, all the complete theological implications they understand of that. And that's almost irrelevant because on the ground, on an emotional level, on an emotional level, this is just Mary's boy. Sure, she feels the weight that he's the Messiah and he's Jesus is going to save his people. But this is the baby who she has loved before he was born. Mary has loved this baby before he was born. I mean, this baby grew inside of her womb. I mean, I love, I've loved my kids when they were in their, when my wife, their mother's womb, like, and, and I tell my wife, oh, I love, I love the baby, and you talk, but like, I didn't have the connection that my wife had with the baby, as that, that baby was growing inside of her. Jesus was loved by Mary before he was born. She felt the kicks and the movement. And strange and paradoxically, even once he's born, the Son of God, like, nurses and finds daily sustenance through his mother. And there's a closeness and a love there. So first and foremost, on an emotional level, Mary is probably, and I can't be certain of this, but Mary's probably first and foremost thinking, where's my boy? I hope my boy's safe. Where's my boy? I hope he's safe. And then they find him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So Jesus is, um, he's in the temple, his father's house, and they finally found him. He's like, guys, I have to be about my father's business. I have to be about my father's business. I was in my father's house, the temple. But then it says this last line, the last word, that they they were greatly distressed. Now, the Greek word here can be translated distressed. That's fine. Probably more accurate, it's anguish. The other time this word appears in the New Testament is in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, And 
the rich man is punished and condemned and he finds himself suffering and he's begging Father Abraham just to give him a drop of water to, to help his anguish. And you know, if you lost your child for three days, it's not like I was distressed. It is anguish. It is like a living hell. And she's suffering through this in the chaos and everything's out of control. But nevertheless, Mary continues to be faithful. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Do you not know I will be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying as he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. Mary treasures these things in her heart. She feels anguish and distress, but she continues to trust God. Now, at this point, you can see Mary's life is a roller coaster. Like, often you just think at the beginning it kind of got off to a rough start. But then, you know, the nativity scene happened. It was all good. It's like, no, man. There's all kinds of factors from Rome, her poverty, the betrothal process, the pregnancy, the most powerful person in the land wanting to kill your child, having to go to Egypt, losing your child. But through all of that roller coaster, Mary consistently and faithfully resolves to say, here I am, Lord. What would you have of me? What would you do? Like, what would you have of me, Lord? I, I, I'm here. And so she takes a posture. And, and what I mean by posture is how do you present your body? Or maybe a better way to think about this is how do you present yourself before the Lord? Because we have this wonderful example from this young faithful girl here. She presents herself. She has a posture that says, this may be out of control. My hands can't control this. This is bad. This is bad. Nevertheless, I am not my own. I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. And let's be honest at this point. You know, the last couple years have been a bit chaotic. Doesn't it feel as if so many things are out of your hands? Similar to Mary, where it's like big things to small things, like your personal relationships, maybe um, with your family, or in her case, like this person she's betrothed to, but there's also the Roman Empire. It's like at every level, there's things that remind you, you are not in control. Things are out of your hands. And all of a sudden, you can feel those things piling up. You know, the tension is building. It's on your neck. You feel it in your shoulders. You feel it in your back, and you get so tense, you can again forget to exhale and breathe. So whatever you bring today, whatever you carry with you this morning, you picture your name in the center and all the little factors shaping you and forming you, things that cause you stress and anxiety and doubt, all those things, what you need to do this morning is exhale, breathe, change your posture before the Lord. I am your servant. I am not my own. Let it be to me according to your word. And so you tell the Lord, it's like, take this stuff from me. I know giving you things doesn't mean they all work out and they magically get better, but I know I am not in control. And I know even though I think this is in the control of somebody's hands and this is in the control of someone else's hands, ultimately all things are in your hands. So Lord, help me to breathe, help me to excel, exhale, and help me to trust you and to serve you 
here I am. Take my doubts, my faults, my failures. Take me with my anxieties, my stress, my worries. Take it all, Lord, and use me. Here I am. I am your servant. So take some moments, like right now. Just picture those things that are out of your hands, out of your control, that are, that are weighing heavily on you. What are they? And reflect the posture of this young girl, Mary, who just says, I'm going to trust in you. I'm your servant. Like right now, right, like give them to God. Think, think of them. Say, God, take this and take this. Now, this is not um, the last and final time things will feel out of control for Mary. Her boy would grow up, become an adult. And soon the, the tides of popular opinion would turn against him. The crowds would turn against him. The mobs would condemn him. And he would be handed over to Roman soldiers. And there he would be treated horrifically. He would be flogged and beaten and mocked. They would strip him naked. And like the most horrific things you could imagine happening are happening. And for Mary, you have to understand and remember, yes, he is the son of God, but he's also her sweet, precious baby boy. Like, that's my boy. I nursed him. I loved him before he was born. And so after Jesus is flogged and beaten and mocked and stripped naked and they nail him to a cross and they raise it, who do you think is there to see the cross stood on high? His mother's there. Mary is there. And as they raise the cross, she sees her son in absolute agony and torment. John 19, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. So this is like unbearable weight to see your boy who you love hanging on a cross in this manner. You know, if you're a parent, your kid could like get a small spring on their pinky, right? And you immediately would be like, Lord, you could break all my fingers. Just don't let my baby hurt anymore. You know what I'm talking about? There's a sense of helplessness and hopelessness and things are so out of control that you just like pray illogical things like, God, just don't let my baby's pinky hurt anymore. You could break all my fingers. And one of the most uncomfortable feelings is to be in a state where you can't protect your child. And Mary, who's loved and protected and watched over her boy his entire life, is now in absolute agony and terror, and it's overwhelming. On top of that, and we don't know why, but Joseph is not there, probably because he's passed away at this point. But in the past, through difficult times when things were out of control, Mary had Joseph, good old faithful and righteous Joseph, who she might have originally thought would cast her out and, and put her to open shame publicly. But he resolved to treat her right at the news of her pregnancy. And good old faithful Joseph, when the Lord said, you have to flee from your life because the king wants to kill your baby, we're going to go to Egypt. It'll be okay. 
But now Mary stands before the agony of her son without her husband to comfort her, to help her bear the weight of that. She sees the nails pierce her son's hands and feet, and maybe at this point she remembers long ago that when the child was just a baby and they brought him to the temple, an old man named Simeon reached out and grabs the baby and says, this child will be for the rising and falling of many. And then she remembers the warning that the old man Simeon gave. He looks at Mary and says, and your soul will be pierced with the sword as well. And in this moment, she indeed feels the sword pierce in her very soul, the crushing weight of the agony of her son. And she looks at him and says, we named you Jesus. Yeshua, your name means God is going to save us. And now these evil men mock you saying you can't even save yourself. Mary is there by the side of her son as he's dying a slow, excruciating death in agony. And then something remarkable happens. You need to know that to get out a few words when you're on a cross is very difficult. The way the Romans crucified people would be extremely difficult to get out a few words. But Jesus reserves with some of the little strength he has some of his final words for his mother. Because you've got to understand... Mary has spent her whole life loving her son, but Jesus has also spent his whole life loving his mother. And with little strength he has, he actually looks out for his mom. And the scriptures record this. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. In other words, Jesus says, Joseph isn't here. I'm the firstborn son. John, you now take care of my mom. You're going to act like the firstborn son. You're going to take my mom into your home. You're going to care for her. Some of the last words of Jesus are looking out for someone who spent her life looking out for him. And Jesus continues in his suffering until, according to the scriptures, the ninth hour. And at that point, finally, Jesus calls out with a loud voice and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he exhaled. He breathes out his last breath. And now Jesus goes where Mary cannot go. Jesus goes down into the grave, down into death itself. Mary cannot go there. No one can go there. He goes down into the grave, down into death, and once again, Mary has lost her boy. But she lost her boy before, right? She had lost her boy before, but he wasn't completely lost because he was about his father's business in his father's house in the temple. And she's lost her boy again, but he's not completely lost once again because he must be about his father's business. He has some enemies to deal with. And this time you won't find him in the temple precisely because he himself is the temple. 
and what you tear down, he will raise up on the third day. Mary has lost her child before, but he wasn't completely lost because he was about his father's business. And now once again, he goes down into the grave, down into death to do his father's work. And then you have to picture it, the dark, empty tomb, right? The stone slab, the lifeless body of Jesus, giving the appearance of lostness. But then, after three days, the processes of death begin to reverse. On the cellular level, things begin to animate once again. Blood begins to flow through the dead body. And then, in the darkness of that tomb, boom, 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 boom. And then the great inhale of the ages. Jesus' lifeless body breathes again. And because Jesus inhales, all of creation, and you included, can finally exhale. The great exhale at the culmination of the ages. We breathe and exhale because Jesus inhaled. Because Jesus breathed, we breathe. We join in creation. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. He breathes, so we breathe. He inhales, so we get to finally exhale. And that changes everything. It changes everything. He's not dead. He's alive. He breathes. His body is back in power and glory. And because of that reality, all of reality is forever changed. And this like brings us all the way back to the issue of posture. Because it's like, if this is out of control and this is out of control and I don't have my hands on this and I don't know what's going to happen here, one thing I do know, I am not my own. I was bought with blood that was not my own. His heart beats and he breathes. And because of that, I can exhale. And so we entitled this series, like, Why This Jubilee? Like, why do you have joy? And it's not because there's not all these problems. There's all kinds of problems. All kinds of things are out of control. But 2,000 years ago, it seemed as if things were out of control as Mary watched her son beaten and stripped and nailed to a cross. But even in that moment, he was about his father's business. And if God can flip that evil and turn it to good, God can certainly work with all the problems in our lives. And so exhale, no matter where you're at today, what you bring to the table, what you're afraid of, whatever your fears, your anxieties, your doubts may be, exhale because he's in control. Exhale because he's king. Exhale because he offers you forgiveness. Exhale because his name is Jesus. It means God will save and exhale because he loves you. And if you doubt that love, you look to the cross. Just breathe. And that will give you the ability to change your posture before him 
And maybe then you can say to God, in the midst of all the things that are going on, here I am. I am your servant. I am not my own. May it be to me according to your word. And so as we close out the year, and we still have another Sunday and Christmas Eve, but as we get to the end of the year, I want this to sort of be an anthem for us, ending the year and then moving into the next year, that our anthem would be, I am your servant, God. May it be to me according to your word. I'm going to trust you in good times, in bad times, in the chaos, in the storm, whatever, whatever you lead me to. I'm going to trust you. I am your servant. I am not my own. So whatever it is, let that be your anthem as we close out the year. Let it be like uh, the cry of your heart that we would join in the long list of faithful people from Abraham to Moses and Isaiah and to a young girl named Mary who terrified with all the things looming over over her says, I trust you. I am your servant. All of creation takes its great exhale because he inhaled. His heart began to beat once again. And today we cling to the truth that even right now, he still lives, lives and he still breathes. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take this and remember And so today, thousands of years removed, we remember that a son was lost, but he was not completely lost. The son was about his father's business, and he laid down his life. His body was broken on our behalf. Let's remember. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. The Apostle Paul would later tell us that when we take this, we are promising to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. And so Jesus' body was broken, but it did not remain broken. It breathed once again. And because he breathes, we breathe. Because he lives, we live. And we trust in him. And as we take this, we promise to proclaim his death and his resurrection until he returns. So, Lord, help us to be faithful servants. Here we are. Use us. Father, we give you thanks for your word, the scriptures, and the power they hold. We thank you for the work of your son, Jesus. He is our champion. He is our victor. He goes down to the grave and into death to swallow death itself. And because he inhales, we can exhale. So I pray for every single person in this room with all the frustrations, the tension, the anxiety, the stress, the faults, the failures. Pray for everyone right now in these moments that we could just breathe and trust in you. You've been so good to us. Help us to be faithful to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.